News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Have you noticed that products at the grocery store seem to be getting a little bit smaller, but the prices aren't getting a little bit smaller? As a matter of fact, prices are probably increasing a little bit, while what you're buying seems to be decreasing. Well, this is actually called shrinkflation, and yes, it is a thing. Joining us now to talk more about that is Sylvain Charlebaud, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Uh, thanks for joining us to talk about this. I have a feeling this is becoming more and more common, Sylvain. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the uh, shrinkflation goes in cycles. Uh, whenever input costs go up, uh, manufacturers tend to reduce quantities or the volume of products but they don't adjust prices, uh, so which means that we get less for our money. So that phenomenon is called shrinkflation, and a lot of people have noticed uh, shrinkflation cases all over the grocery store uh, of late. But really, the practice has been going on for years. Right. So does that mean that when times are good, they put that back? Because I feel like things just get smaller permanently. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I mean, honestly, it's, it's all about training the marketplace. Uh, you get accustomed to... Uh, certain bite sizes. In fact, uh, companies are actually getting smarter. They actually, instead of just reducing volume overnight, they will, say, increase the number of units that they would go from 15 cookies to 18 cookies. But those cookies would be smaller. They would basically offer you the same volume, but six months or a year after, they would actually go back to 15 cookies, reducing the actual total quantity of the product. So that's so companies are getting really smarter in terms of shrinkflation. Okay, you're saying that they train us, that they actually invest in training us to get used to this, to prepare us for it? Oh, absolutely. You go to the grocery store, there's 18,000 products. How can you possibly remember the size of how a product would look like unless uh, you keep uh, some samples at home? And sometimes people have actually accidentally kept products at home for many years to only realize that their product or favorite products have actually shrunk over time. So, now we tend to be very aware of how much something costs. Are we less aware, and maybe we should be more aware, less aware of how much something weighs, like the net weight of a product that we're buying? I, I think we're good at memorizing price points, like nine ninety nine or five ninety nine or a dollar. Uh, but I don't think our brain is trained to remember grams or, or liters, and companies know that. And so basically they'll play around with packaging, and sometimes uh, the packaging itself will sell you an illusion that you're buying the same product. But underneath, say, they'll actually pump up the plastic to reduce the quantity inside, say, a, a, a bottle of juice, or uh, with crackers they'll probably increase the amount of plastics in there. Those are the things that we've seen in the past, and I know that a lot of consumers get upset about that. Right. Is it also like I'm thinking about the giant bags of potato chips that when you open them, the bag is mostly air? Yes. And uh, do you remember uh, a few weeks ago the feud between Frito Lay and Loblaw? Yes. We couldn't agree on prices. Well, guess what? I think at the ch in chips, you may actually see a, a, another cycle of shrinkflation. 
Probably because they, they likely agreed on prices, but uh, they are aware that they need to reduce costs. And the one way to do it very cheaply uh, is to reduce quantities and increase the air in bags. So, yes, absolutely. Be careful out there. You may actually be buying more air than before. Oh, boy. Okay, so then, Sylvain, what should we look for at the grocery store? What would give us the clues that something has been subject to shrinkflation? Uh, it's, I mean, the only thing you can do is to monitor quantities uh, per 100 grams or per 100 milliliters. And, and in Canada, a retailer is obligated to display those prices to give a chance for, for consumers to compare prices. So uh, and that by memory, you can basically write them down. Uh, create a bit of a database. That's a lot of work. I mean, at the end of the day, how much time do you have to really monitor these things? I mean, we, uh, that's what we do at the lab ourselves, and we do track some of these instances. But uh, there are more and more of them. And, uh, yeah, and at the end of the day, it's not illegal to do it. It's just a little bit upsetting for some. Oh, it sounds like it. Is there a more common, like what's the most common part of the grocery store that suffers this, or is it all over the grocery store? It's all over, but uh, most shrinkflation cases are at the center of the store with dry goods like pasta, cookies, uh, sauces, uh, uh, parades. I mean, all those are things that we've seen a lot of shrinkflation cases. Uh, but you also see them in meats, for example, like bacon. Um, many years ago, uh, a pack of bacon was 500 grams. Now most of them are 375 grams but they actually sell them at the same price. In fact, bacon prices have gone up significantly in recent years. It's basically a buck a slice these days. Yeah, that's expensive bacon. I'm going to have to pay more attention now when I go to the grocery <laughs> store. Sylvain, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. My pleasure. Bye-bye. That's Sylvain Charlebois, director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. So I know you've undoubtedly noticed this when you're grocery shopping. So tell me, is there a product that you have noticed getting smaller at the grocery store? And if so, what is it? I have to say, Steve gets it. Steve already emailed me while he was listening to the interview and said... I have bought Berea pasta for years. A while back, it went from 450 grams to 410 grams, and the retail price stayed the same. So there you go. You notice it for sure. I've noticed it in so many different products. What are some of the other places you might notice? Toilet paper. Toilet paper is a big one for this. Ever wondered like how many sheets you get in a roll, what you were getting a year ago or two years ago on one roll? is probably more than what you are getting now when you're buying the same toilet paper. And it might, might even be a little bit more expensive, but you're actually getting fewer sheets per roll. Cereal is another big one. You know how they get you with cereal? And this is so clever. They make the box bigger. They make it taller and skinnier. So you think you're getting more cereal, but you are actually not getting more cereal. You're getting less. And of course, potato chips is another big one. So what have you noticed? Any products at the grocery store that you've noticed that are getting smaller, but you're paying the same, if not more? Let me know what you notice on your trip to the grocery store. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, we keep hearing from people like Premier John Horgan that BC is in a good place when it comes to our COVID-19 situation. But are we? How can we tell? 
there are a lot of experts out there who say, listen, there's a lack of data, and that doesn't paint the whole picture of where we are at. So we thought, let's talk a little bit more about that. Joining us now is Andrew Longhurst, a health policy researcher, author, and PhD candidate at Simon Fraser University. Andrew, thanks for being here. Good morning, Timmy. Now, I know it's challenging right now because a lot of people, I think, in their minds are kind of moving on from COVID-19. But in terms of research and data and information, where are we at? Well, it's really hard to know. Um, We have gone to a weekly reporting um, of key COVID-19 data, um, but much of the data now, by the time it's reported, is more than a week old. Um, our really our best uh, data right now uh, is wastewater surveillance data. So looking at the concentration of the virus in wastewater uh, taken from samples at our wastewater treatment plants. Um, now keep in mind that's only for Metro Vancouver. Um, so what that data, that limited data that we have now does show us, um, because keep in mind, uh, we're not doing widespread uh, PCR testing, and that's not being captured in the way that it was prior to the fifth wave. Um, and we're not, uh, co- the BCCDC uh, is not collecting uh, self-reported positive uh, rapid tests, uh, which they were doing very briefly, but they stopped. So wastewater surveillance is one of our best indicators right now. Um, it is showing that we're in uh, a period of growth. Um, and the question is, because we don't have that information about cases, uh, because we're not doing the testing and we're not reporting uh, self-reported or collecting self-reported rapid test results, um, it's really hard to know what this wave is going to look like, uh, where it will peak, and uh, how long it will last. But we are in the sixth wave. Um, that's clear. Um, but the picture is really uncertain in BC. What is the challenge with the wastewater data? And like, I know it's more accurate in terms of you can definitely get a better picture of how many people have COVID. So what is it telling us? It's it's really at such a high level of telling you, OK, there's more there is more virus being uh, picked up uh, in our wastewater, which would indicate that people are shedding the virus, um, which says, OK, we're likely seeing a lot more transmission in cases, but also keep in mind that unlike cases, it's not going to give you the geographical specificity of where cases are, what's happening. Um, it's, it's, it's imperfect. It's a useful indicator, but it's nothing as useful as um, understanding uh, test results and having that collection of data. So, you know, I would say at this point in time, we have widespread distribution of free rapid antigen tests in BC, and that's a great thing, and I hope that continues. Um, But what we should be doing is allow people to self-report and encourage them to self-report their positive results. Um, And that would help us understand at a community level what the risks are and what transmission is like. And that would allow our modelers, like the BC COVID-19 Modeling Group, to be able to then model what the, what this wave and what future waves are right. likely to be like. Andrew, that is such a good point because I know so many people who have, you know, taken a, a test at home and been positive, so they don't go to work, they stay at home for the week or the two weeks. Uh, but So that's it. That doesn't go anywhere, that information. It never gets reported. That's right. So right now we have we have data, but it's not being linked up to any public collection of that. And I think that's really unfortunate at this point because we know that, for example, those children that are under five year old five. I have a toddler who's not able to be vaccinated because he's not eligible. We're at a point where we have removed all of these public health protections 
um, and yet we don't have any data to even gauge the, the, the transmission and the risk in our own community. And I think for a lot of people, um, that's really necessary information to provide because they want to know, should their behaviors change depending on where we're at in this wave and the kind of um, vulnerabilities and risks that they individually and their families and friends um, may have. If you're immunocompromised, if you're visiting elders, if you have um, people who are, are more likely to have severe disease, Um, If they're in your lives, you want to be able to know that in your own community. And that's why uh, the data is so critically important. What do you think we should be doing then to protect ourselves? Like, where are we at with our numbers? Well, again, it's really hard to know, but I think anecdotally, I know lots of people in my own network who were very careful for the last two years and uh, contracted COVID only in the last few weeks. So that says to me there's a lot of transmission happening in in communities across the province, um, but it's not being reported. So I think right now, uh, you know, the fundamentals, wear a high-quality mask, even better wear a respirator like an N95. Um, this is this is good protection, and when you're in indoor places where you're sharing air with lots of different people, put on that respirator. We don't have a mask mandate, and I think we do in BC. We need to bring back that indoor mask mandate. I think that's a very important intervention. What do you think, Andrew, when you look around, when you go out in public and you see people behaving like this is over and they want to go back to living their lives like pre-pandemic, what do you think when you see that? Well, I think I think the challenge is people are getting a lot of mixed messages. So on the one hand, because we have... Um, removed all of these public health protections, it gives a sense that the pandemic is over. And I think that's why the indoor mask mandate is so important, because it still signals the importance that as a society, it's important to protect one another, and that the pandemic is not over. And, you know, you can hear Dr. Teresa Tam federally, or the WHO globally saying, you know, this pandemic is not over, and we're already seeing new variants. So the, the latest one is BA2 of Omicron subvariant. We already know that there are very likely going to be future variants. Um, and I think the point here is that a lot of these public health measures, we're going to have to strategically use them in a way going forward because vaccines alone are not enough. Vaccines are incredibly important, and uh, it's it's really important that everyone gets their, their third and, and fourth uh, doses uh, as they're eligible. Um, and But we also need to look at these other public health measures, like masking in public places, right. like cleaning and ventilating shared air, and also look at widespread testing as a really important intervention that we're, we're probably going to need going forward, um, as well as, uh, again, continuing to stay up to date on our vaccinations. All right, Andrew, thank you so much for that this morning. Uh, it's been great to talk with you. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, we all saw those border lineups for the long weekend, didn't we? Like, we're talking four or five hours wait to go south on Friday. It was crazy. Well, that's also brought up the question about the rules. That's why everybody's going down there is because there's no more testing that you have to do in order to come back. But that doesn't mean there are no rules for when you come back. Not everybody knows about that. Joining us now is Len Saunders, an immigration lawyer who is based in Blaine. Good morning, Len. Hi, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So I understand the Canadians were back in full force in Whatcom County over the weekend. What was that like? 
Uh, it was expected, but it was definitely a shock after literally seeing no Canadian license plates over the last two years. So it was it was welcome, but it was definitely a lot busier than what I've seen over the last two years. And I know that that be might be a little bit hard for some people to take, right? That's a big adjustment having all these people suddenly show up again. Well, it's like, you know, you go to Costco and now instead of parking at the front of the parking lot by the front doors, you have to park you know, miles away. So, you know, it definitely took a lot of adjustment for locals here. But, you know, it's kind of the love-hate relationship. People love to complain about all the Canadians coming down and clogging up all of the, you know, the roads and the parking lots of all the stores. But everyone definitely welcomed them back. I know there's a lot of happy businesses in Whatcom County right now, a lot of happy people. I'll bet. Okay, but let's talk about the rules here, because it sounds like a lot of people don't realize that there are still rules about crossing the border back into Canada, right? Like, you have to wear a mask for 14 days. Well, it's interesting, because I hear about all of the rules. Like, people tell me, you know, I'm kind of the go-to guy when people have questions about crossing both ways. I had no idea until yesterday that travelers were still required to wear a mask when they went back to Canada for 14, you know, for 14 days. I had no idea. And it's interesting. I looked up the Travel Canada website, and there it was buried in the rules that anybody who reenters Canada has to wear a mask in public places for 14 days. I couldn't believe it. I was shocked. Yeah, I don't think they're, that's very widely advertised. I mean, they don't remind you of that either at the border when you come across. Well, I came across on April 1st, the first day with no COVID tests required, and nobody told me. And it's interesting because when you see, like, you know, not hundreds or thousands, there's tens of thousands of Canadians now coming down every day. How are they going to enforce that in Canada? It's, it's definitely the honor system. And my feeling is most people either don't know about it or if they do know about it, they're not going to bother wearing a mask for 14 days. I, I can't see most people doing that, especially when you're not required to wear one in British Columbia. This is a federal requirement, not a provincial requirement. Right. So in Washington State then, um, Len, what's it like there in terms of like the COVID rates right now and people's dealing with it? Well, you know, as, as you know, the, the numbers are going back up like the RNBC at a small amount. So people are still concerned. But you definitely don't see the amount of people wearing masks down here. Like when I came up for a few hours on April the 1st, I was actually shocked. I went into a couple stores uh, just to grab some, you know, some items. And I was, I was surprised how many people had masks on. You don't see very many people in this state with masks on. Right. So it's still, it sounds like a work in progress. So it just sounds like a lot of adjustment. Are a lot of people in, in that area in Blaine and Bellingham interested in going north for a visit? Well, I was. I know most Americans also don't realize that they have to be fully vaccinated. I know ah. our vaccination rates are much lower in the U.S. and in, in Washington state than Canada or British Columbia. And so a lot of Americans you know, if they know that, they're not traveling, but I'm assuming quite a few probably get turned away uh, if they're not vaccinated. So that's kind of another issue that most Americans don't realize is the uh, the requirement to be vaccinated to enter Canada as an American. And it's not, you know, you hear these stories of Canadians being able to re-enter and not do the app and not be vaccinated and kind of do a self-protest on re-entering. Americans don't have that luxury. 
if they're not vaccinated and they don't do the app, they will be turned around and they'll come back to, you know, south of the border. Right. Well, Len, listen, thanks so much for your time this morning. Thanks, Jimmy. Have a good day. You too. Len Saunders is an immigration lawyer in Blaine talking about that back and forth across the border that, yes, there is this rule that I don't, I'm not sure, I don't think it's really being enforced, but you tell me if you've heard about this. But if you're coming back into Canada, having been in the United States, that you still have to wear a mask for 14 days upon your return home. I did cross the border and nobody said anything about that. At the time, I actually ended up finding the rule and doing that, but I wear a mask most of the time anyway. So how many people are knowing that and actually doing that when they... This is Mornings with Simi. Well, our next guest is very busy these days. He's 12 years old. He's a podcaster here in Canada and his goal to support children's hospitals across the country. And to do that, he has interviewed everyone from Jimmy Kimmel to Matthew McConaughey. And today he is in Vancouver, where he has some pretty big interviews lined up here. He's going to be talking to the president and CEO of the BC Children's Hospital Foundation. He's going to be talking to Brock Besser, of course, the Vancouver Canucks. So we're glad that we were able to grab him for a couple of minutes. Xander Zatelny is with us now. Good morning, Xander. Good morning. How are you doing? I am good. Thank you for doing this. Tell me, what got you interested in doing something like this? Well, for the podcast, it first started off because I don't know when to stop talking. So this is basically like letting my voice out. And I really like I love meeting new people, love meeting like especially celebrities, because every single interview has a story to tell, which is great. And I started to, you know, um, sell merchandise, sell hoodies for my local children's hospital, which is CHEO, Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario. And I was like, I really want to expand this. So I did a proposal to the NHL. They said yes. And I've done each seven Canadian NHL teams. so And it's just been amazing so far. That is amazing. And you're doing this because, Xander, you yourself spent a lot of time at Children's Hospital, didn't you? Right, correct. I have a heart condition. Okay, so how much time would you say you spent in and out of hospitals, and what was that experience like? Um, I have checkups like every six months, and when I was younger, um, I had a lot more, and I had a lot, a lot of surgeries when I was younger, and that was very rough. Sorry, very tough for me and my family, for my family and I, and yeah, it was just really hard for us, but. You know, we we all stayed strong, and I'm a regular kid. I have a podcast. I'm doing sports. I'm in school. So, yeah. That's so all because of the support, would you say, of, of having, like, a great children's hospital in your community? Yeah. And, like, Chio has been amazing to, to me and my family. You know, they make me feel like I'm at home. They, you know, they just, they're so great. You know, I I ask for something, they get it right away, and... I've found that out like a lot of other children's hospitals. Like now that I'm doing the tour, I found that every single children's hospital has just been amazing and so great. They're all so nice. So yeah, like all the children's hospitals are just amazing. Xander, so we talked about all the celebrities that you've met and interviewed too. What has that been like? It's been crazy. Like like you said, Jimmy Kimmel, Matthew McConaughey. I interviewed John Stamos. Brooke Henderson, they've just been so great. All of them have been down to earth, so nice. They all, like I said, they all have a story to tell. 
all have a piece of advice. And yeah, they've just been so amazing. So how do you, like, what do you decide what you're going to talk about with them, Xander? Like today you're going to have a chance to chat with Brock Besser. He's got some pretty important stuff going on right now too, trying to make it to the playoffs. You're going to talk to BC's Children's Hospital. Like, what do you want to know when you talk to them? Well, for the um, BC, like Children's Hospital, for all Children's Hospitals, I just really want to find out stuff about the foundations, about their history, about what they do. And, you know, for the NHLers, same exact thing, basically. What they do, like their his. Uh, obviously, I know what they do. They're in the NHL, but like <laughs> what their his, what their history was, them growing up as a kid. Um, you know their stories growing up, their family, their country. So that's basically what I talk about. Okay, so I know you've got a lot of interviews lined up today. Where can we listen to your podcast, Xander? You can go to my website, xanderzatomi dot com. And it has all my interviews there. And uh, you can go to YouTube, Spotify, uh, Twitter. Like, yeah, they're all on, on social media. We will do that. Listen, good luck today. Awesome. Thank you very much. This is Mornings with Simi. It would be awful if something happened to BC's cherry crop this year because, I mean, how great are BC cherries? We love them. Well, some cherry farmers in the province are getting a little creative to try to deal with these unseasonably cool temperatures that we have been having. Joining us now is Sukhpal Ball, who's the president of the BC Cherry Growers Association. Good morning, Sukhpal. Good morning to me. What is going on here? I know it's been cold out there, but how is this affecting the cherry crop? Well, yeah, this this time of year uh, when uh, spring, which is supposed to be, uh, you know, coming, but it's been up and down. And, and uh, what, what happens is the the blossoms, uh, the buds are opening up to, to reveal the cherries. And, and if there is any uh, uh, minus uh, temperatures, that's where the, the it can actually it just uh, freezes, freezes the cherry buds. So, so we have to take uh, measures to, to try to stop that because uh, without, without the cherry bud, there's going to be no cherry there. So what are the measures that are being taken? Well, we, uh, yeah, we, as you mentioned, we do get creative and, and we, we fly helicopters uh, above the, the tree canopy because there, there tends to be an inversion of, uh, of uh, higher temperatures uh, above, above the tree canopy. And we push that warm air down and then it moves out the cold air that's, that's sitting uh, near, near the tree. So, so that does, uh, does increase the temperature by, by a couple degrees. And, and really that's sometimes that's all, all it takes to, to uh, change, to reverse that situation of, of it getting damaged uh, damaged buds so is that what's going on right now is this what cherry farmers are doing yeah we for the past uh, past week we uh, we've had this this cold um, cold front that's just been uh, hovering over in, in in this area and and early in the mornings um, we've seen some uh, minus three minus four uh, type of temperatures so so we've had, uh, and on top of that, the there's also a, a, what we call wind machines, big uh, towers with propellers on them that are fixed in the orchard, and 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 are are mainly are their job is to to move move the air throughout the orchard so that the cold air doesn't settle by the trees. So so yeah, we've uh, we've had to, uh, and, and it's not an, it's not something new. We 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 do get cold weather uh, during the springtime, but what it, what is new is is kind of several several days of this usually there's one or two perhaps cold cold mornings and and then things move on but but this this cold front uh, just didn't want to didn't want to move thanks thankfully i think it's it is uh, on its way out now i was looking that we are not going to get any any minus 
temperatures hopefully moving forward and right. and we'll get into bloom uh, fairly shortly. Well, that's what I was wondering then. Okay, so how is the cherry crop looking then if things start to climb back up to normal temperatures? Yeah, I, I think uh, I think we still have a good strong crop. Um, uh, I'm more optimistic than our, our, our neighbors uh, in Washington State. I, I saw some pictures of, of trees in in full bloom with a with a pile of snow on top of the trees. They they got this this big dump of snow recently uh, that uh, thankfully we we avoided here in the Okanagan. And um, you know they that's when bees should be flying and, and pollinating, and there's snow sitting on the canopy. So so uh, you know re- relatively to how things are there, I think we're, we're in much better shape, and um, and we're we're still uh, optimistic that we get a, a a nice crop, but but we're definitely on our toes, watching what Mother Nature is going to throw at us next. It's always something, isn't it? So, Sukpal, yeah. how big is the cherry crop the industry here in BC? Yeah, it, we we had just done done some some numbers and uh, uh, had somebody look into it. Uh, you know, it's pushing close to a, a two hundred million dollar crop. Um, you know, uh, money wise to for economic value in in the province and uh, acres. It's about five thousand acres. And um, you know, we're at, when I was just speaking about Washington, uh, they're at about forty five thousand acres of, of sweet cherries. So so we're 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 quite small. Uh, in the in the grand scheme, but we do produce some of the the best varieties in the world here in Canada. Uh, some of the quality that we ship is is, is the top in, in the world as well. So so we are we're quite small, but very well known worldwide for for the the cherries that uh, we do produce. I would say very well known locally too, because BC cherry season is something pretty special that you got to get in on while it's while it's there. Yeah, and uh, and with. Uh, shift into cherries uh, in the last uh, last 10 to 15 years um, you know there's been more opportunities for markets and 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 locally as well uh, I think we're going to see a lot more BC cherries uh, in in stores uh, uh, this summer than than we have in the past well I certainly hope so listen I hope this helicopter thing worked Sikpal so let us know how it goes okay all right thanks thanks for joining us that is Sikpal Bal who is the president of the BC Cherry Association so we've all been kind of complaining about it seems colder this spring yes it's true we had that cold snap and that was a big problem for cherry farmers especially in the Okanagan where they've been using helicopters to create an airflow to move some of the cold air out from under the cherry trees and get some warmer air in there because they said that that was just a way to get the air moving and to help the cherry crop and at least it wasn't like like in the United States, uh, in Washington State, as Sukpal there pointed out, they had snow sitting on top of their cherry trees. So we did manage to avoid that, which is good. But boy, it just got me thinking of great BC produce that we have to look forward to coming up this summer, including BC cherries. Uh, hopefully temperatures for all of us will start to get a little bit more back to normal. This is Mornings with Simi. What do you know about the animal rights movement? Now, you may think of that in terms of, you know, making sure that people don't use animals for lab testing and things like that. But it could also apply to your pets. This is a movement that's receiving more and more support in courtrooms and in legislatures. So what's it like here in B.C.? Well, joining us to talk about that is Victoria Schroff, an animal lawyer and professor of animal law at UBC's Allard School of Law. Victoria, thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me on the show. I I just will correct that I'm not um, a full professor. I'm an adjunct professor at UBC and also at Capilano University um, but yeah, no, I think that um, it's a, it's a very interesting topic you're delving into today, 
And I would actually reframe it from a phrase of animal rights to human responsibility for animals. Interesting. Now, you've been doing this for more than 20 years. What was it like to get into this as a specialty? Because I don't think a lot of people were doing that back then. No, I um, I took over um, animal, this animal law practice that I have now grown into what it is today, which is all I do for many, many years, just practice in the area, um, from a woman called Kristen Tilquist. And she was BC's and uh, one of Canada's pioneers in 1997 in starting an exclusive animal law practice. And she left in the year 2000. I took over her practice, and the practice now... 22 years later, is pretty much unrecognizable to what I saw in the year 2000. And why is that? We've seen um, improvement in areas that um, I thought would take longer. We've also seen um, something slide backwards. So it's, it, animal law has been um, one of those areas that has it's grown. We still have very few practitioners um, and, and even fewer still doing it full time. But we have since seen, for example, um, Crown prosecutors in the last 15 years uh, stepping up and doing hundreds of um, Crown prosecutions relating to animal cruelty. Um, and that has really stepped up, things like that. And um, animal testing being on the radar and companion animals and recognizing their place in families has really increased. Pet custody cases have been up at my firm, for example, dangerous dog cases. Those are just some of the cases I deal with, including wild animal cases. Right. How do you see that evolving then, Victoria? Like, What are the, what are the next steps, do you think, in, when it, in terms of animal law? Yeah, that's a great question. I think we're looking at looking and understanding animals as sentient beings. I think that is the the next thing that we're looking at. We're also looking at the intersection with rights of nature, environmental law, with that of animal law. And we're seeing more of an overlap between the two. So, for example, uh, most people, I mean, surveys show that they feel, uh, you know, your dog is your family member. But what about, um, what about whales in the ocean? What about other animals that you don't necessarily relate to that are maybe, as I say, non-terrestrial animals? I think the consciousness of animals has been proven by science, and we're seeing law trying to catch up with that. That's something, I think, in terms of the family pet that I'll bet a lot of people have not thought about, have they? No, I think so. I, I mean, you know, but if you, you spend any appreciable time with an animal, and that's any animal, you will see their intelligence shining through. I really believe that. And I've, I've grown up around animals. I've had animals in my home. I was born in Africa. And so, you know, before I was born, we had animals in our home, and I was born not too far from the Serengeti. So uh, for me, animals have always been really important and to be respected and I think that's also a, a new measure um, for which we can sort of see society's progress vis-a-vis animals is, is the respect and, and understanding of animals. And, of course, this isn't across the board. We still have ridiculously high rates of animal cruelty uh, globally and all kinds of areas like farmed animal um, issues that, that need to be addressed. But I don't remember even five years ago people talking about how intelligent pigs were and comparing them to the intelligence of small children. 
That was unheard of 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, but when it comes to having a family pet then, Victoria, what what are the consequences of going down this road in animal law then? What does that mean for how we treat that family pet? Right. Okay. So right now, animals are largely classified as property under the law. That means they're classified as things. And what my goal is as an animal lawyer and for other people practicing animal law as well is to see an animal move from some thing categorically in law to someone. So what that would look like is that an animal isn't just treated like a table or a chair or a computer. It would be treated as and I shouldn't I don't even like using the word it. They would be treated as a sentient being with consciousness, some a, a, a being, a living being with feelings. So, um, you know, this is this is what I have. I, you know, I I wrote a book last year since we last talked, Simi. And one one line out of my book, it's called Canadian Animal Law. I say um, property is a thing that is owned. Animals are not things. They are intelligent, sentient, animated non-human beings in their own right. Okay, so was it, so in practical terms then, Victoria, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. means that when you have a family pet, if you mistreat that family pet, that pet has rights under the law. Yeah, I think we would start to see that. We, we're, we're not there yet. Um, what, where we are is we're in a bit of a what's called a liminal state, a kind of an in-between state where, as I say, animals are still classified as property under the law. Make no mistake about that. But there are creeping into court decisions and into legislation, as you said in your intro, that animals are given more respect and they are being seen as more than property. We're still seeing how that's going to play out. But this is where things are going. For example, in a pet custody case, all things being equal, where there's been abuse of an animal, um, that's not tolerable. That's absolutely not tolerable. Under It shouldn't be morally and it shouldn't be legally tolerable. And, and, and the court would recognize that. They wouldn't want to return an animal who's been abused back to an abuser just because that animal was owned by the abuser, you see? So yeah. we're already, we've already seen some effects of this. Um, it's a little bit more subtle and nuanced. And we're, um, we're getting to the point where the family pet will, I think, begin to have some of their own intrinsic worth recognized, and that's going to start to be reflected in law. It's going to take different forms. So interesting. Victoria, thank you for your time this morning. Very welcome. That is Victoria Schroff, animal lawyer and adjunct professor of animal law at UBC's Allard School of Law. I mean, 20 years ago, not a whole lot of lawyers that specialized in animal law, but as you heard Victoria describe it, this is a growing field. Uh, Lots more support in courtrooms and in legislatures for kind of encoding that uh, laws that support and back up the rights of animals. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com.